let me bring you to the year 1957. I know a lot about it. I don't. I don't know anything about it. My mom was born that year. Um, so uh, 1957, a young man is a uh, 15-year-old. He's walking to a church to find girls. That's what he said. He said, I was walking to a church to find girls. I'd been invited, this was his words, I'd been invited to go um, to, to a church party to um, meet some girls. He got there, no girls. That's how he tells the story. He said, there's no girls. Um, but what was there was a band, a terrible band. But that band had a lead singer. It was pretty good. This 15-year-old, uh, was a pretty good musician himself and um, decided, you know, he'd stick around and listen to a couple of their songs. And um, his, his, one of his good friends, a guy named Ivan, was actually in the band and wasn't that good. But he thought this lead singer was really good. And so he stuck around and after the party was over, after the band had played their set, his friend Ivan came up to him and said, hey, do you want to meet some of the guys in the band? After all, this was Ivan's secret plan. He was trying to get this guy around the band because he thought this 15-year-old was so stinking good. He had to have him be a part of their band. And this kid says, sure, why not? And um, he, he gets introduced to a man that day named John Lennon. And this kid's name is Paul you guys know the Beatles? Okay, so true story, my friend Ed uh, out here is wearing, no, he's right over here. Ed, Ed, I'm not gonna have you stand up, but your shirt is a John Lennon shirt. You're wearing a John Lennon shirt today because it's his, yeah, he's standing up out of his own accord. John Lennon's birthday is today. I didn't know this. This is an introduction for Ed. Um, 82 years old today he would have been. That's what I just found out. And, and it's just interesting to think about what would have happened had Ivan not introduced Paul to John, right? Some of the greatest partnerships in history have come as a result of a mutual introduction, right? The two Steves of Apple computers were introduced by a guy named Bill. Sounds so normal. Many weddings that pastors perform are the result of introductions by a mutual friend. I'm going to do one of these weddings this afternoon in just a couple of minutes. Two people who are introduced by a mutual friend getting married. Even, um, you know, royals like uh, Harry and Meghan met like this. They were introduced by their mutual friend. You know her well, Right? Nobody else knows Violet von Westernholtz. That's fine. <laughs> Mutual friends. We can look back upon these uh, little happenstance encounters or these little connections and interactions. There's, we can look at them now and say, these are seismic shifts in the landscape of our lives. But in the moment, it probably would have just felt like a normal interaction. We look back, though, and we say, what would life have been like had John not met Paul or Harry not met, you're thinking Sally, but it's Megan. This isn't just true about famous people. It's true about all of us. It's that our lives are made up of all of these little introductions and invitations to meet people and to build our network and to find new people. I wonder about the people in your life, your own life story, who for you were a link between possibility and opportunities. Be between networking on your behalf to connect you to a new career path or to a new hobby, to a new friend or a new best friend or maybe a new... Uh, spouse, someone who that you, you didn't have a relationship with, you got introduced to someone who then became your spouse. Or even better, I wonder, the people in your life who invited you to the best relationship you have, the one that you found in Jesus. Who was that person, that, that mutual friend that you had that invited you to Jesus? This series that we're in, um, it brings me joy. It's all about the joy that God has when we do the simple steps of following him and living the Jesus first life. And over the past few weeks, we've been considering the concept of joy. 
And joy comes when we give of ourselves. So we give of our time, of our money, of our, of our serving, of our prayers. And, and today, I have a very simple pathway for you to experience joy. Some of the greatest joy you can find in your life. It's very simple. I'm going to walk us through the text. It's going to helpfully fi- find a, a space of resonance in your heart. But then I'm going to show you something that's going to be really challenging for you to do with this. Because joy often requires sacrifice. It requires risk. And the risk today that we want to look at is the joy that comes of inviting other people to meet Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're going. Uh, uh, here's how I wanna get there. Over the, the, the pages of the New Testament, uh, they're covered with introductions between ordinary people like you and me and the savior of the world, Jesus. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's um, you know, being baptized by John the Baptist. If you go all the way to John chapter one, Jesus is being baptized by this guy, John the Baptist, and um, he, he's, he's doing this as a way to show his solidarity with common humanity as a means of inviting a relationship with him. And then soon afterwards, John is standing with some of his own people. John the Baptist had his own group of people, his disciples. One of them was named Andrew. And as John and Andrew were standing together one day, Jesus walked by and John leaned over to Andrew and he said, do you know that that guy's the Messiah? And Andrew looked at John, and he goes, well, if that guy's the Messiah, why am I hanging out with you? And he starts to literally leave John the Baptist and start following after Jesus. Not in the following type of way that you and I follow people on Instagram or Twitter. He literally starts to step after Jesus walking. And Jesus turns around behind him and says, like, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, well, I've heard stuff about you. I want to know if it's true. Can I, can I see where you're staying? And Jesus says, come follow me. Here's how Andrew's story begins in John chapter 1. Andrew... I love when you um, introduce somebody because of their relation to somebody else. It really tells you how big that person is, right? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The implication is we all know who Simon Peter is, but we maybe don't know who Andrew is. Well, here's who Andrew is. He was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, this series about joy is often a first principles type of a thing. The first principles about giving Jesus our first and our best, about giving others our first and our best. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, I imagine joyfully, we have found the Messiah. John wants us to make sure we understand that that means the Christ, the Savior. And he brought him to Jesus. Andrew would have been a great heartlander. Andrew is like the poster child for our mission statement of people who make space to build relationships to make Jesus first. Andrew was an inviter. Andrew was a bringer. He he cared so deeply about what he had found in his own life that he brought the people closest to him to experience it for themselves. Andrew had a front row seat to the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus to prove whether or not he actually was the son of God. And Andrew would watch Jesus interact with people and invite people and introduce himself to people time and time and time again. Early on in Andrew's experience with Jesus, uh, Jesus looked up and said, hey guys, we're going to go out of Judea to Galilee. And so Jesus walked with his followers, Andrew being one of them. And along the way, they passed through this area of town that they didn't often go through, a region called Samaria. There was some um, sort of ethnic differences. Uh, It wasn't really um, cool for them to be uh, mixing it up too much with Samaritans in this day. But nonetheless, the disciples are going and following Jesus. And Jesus stops in John chapter 4. If you've got a phone and you can pull up John chapter 4, I'm going to be skimming through the entirety of John chapter 4 today. Um, not doing it justice, knowing that I'm skipping things, but, but knowing that at the end of the big, the big view of John 4, I think it's got the power for us to find some joy. And John tells us that Jesus stopped at a well along the way. And he talked to a woman. Now, this woman's story is significant, but I've already said that I'm going to cover a lot of ground today, so I don't have time to actually like 
go verse by verse. So let me just summarize for you the first couple sentences of John chapter 4 and her story. Jesus and her meet at the well, and um, here's, here's the dialogue. It goes like this. Jesus looks at her and says, hey, I need some water. And the woman says, you're a Jewish dude. You don't talk to people like me. And Jesus says, uh, very humbly, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for water. Isn't that a humble thing to say? And she says, well, this is a deep well and you're empty-handed. Are you crazy? Where are you going to get this water from? And Jesus says, well, this water doesn't stop you from getting thirsty again. And I have water. I think he does this in, with his, he does, I have water that is eternally better, that truly satisfies. It's like Red Bull, it gives you wings. It's really in the Bible. You've got to read it deeply. The woman says to him, I, I think I'd like some of that. And, then, and, and so Jesus is just stepping through with this woman, his introduction to who he is. He's talking about the physical needs that she has and showing that, that in his presence, there's something spiritually more significant at play here, something that's going to help satisfy the deep longings of our heart, not just the surface level physical needs that she needs, which are important, which are life-giving, but there's something even more sustaining at play here. And it's at this point when she asks for water, that Jesus takes an incredibly different turn. Jesus um, turns this conversation rudely personal. He says to her, I'll read it to you. He says, um, that's great. Uh, Verse 16, go call your husband, come back. Look at verse 17 with me. Here's where we kind of get bogged down in the story. She says, I have no husband, she replied. And kind of expect like Jerry Springer to pop out of the side of this. Or like Maury or somebody like that. Like day, this is daytime TV type stuff now. Where it's like, surprise, I got you. And Jesus says, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five. Everybody say five. five. A lot or a little. What do you think? It's a lot. Elizabeth Taylor had how many? We don't actually know, do we? Yeah. Sorry, that's a bad joke. No, but that's like Elizabeth Taylor territory. The man you have now is not your husband. It's problematic. What you have just said is quite true. I want to stop here for a second because um, if, if you've ever heard a story uh, out of John chapter 4, um, you've heard pastors do this thing where we make the entire thing about this. And I'm going to actually, to my own detriment today, walk us through why the whole thing's not about this so that we can get past this, so that we can actually see the wider story about this woman. I think a lot of times what we do right here is we take this text and we read it through a 21st century American lens, which is to say, what I just did is to say that this is the muse, the Lenny Kravitz used about the American woman, right? This is the woman who is uh, trying to ruin uh, homes and is looking for something in, in places she can't ever be satisfied. I've heard so many sermons, I've even given so many sermons where I've tried to insinuate that this woman was of a certain ill repute or immorality even that she would go from husband to husband. But to do that is actually to be a really lazy Bible reader be- because it imposes our culture upon something the first century knew nothing about. And what's actually happening here in the first century is something that the 21st century knows nothing about. This is part of why I have a job, is to help translate different cultures between each other to help us see more clearly what God is up to, okay? So can, let me do my job for a moment. Back, back in the first century, y'all still with me? Can I do my job? Yeah, because yeah, like the doctor explains to you the cancer, your eyes like glaze over, but then he fixes it and you're like, thank you. I, don't want, you, I want you to see this, okay? Um, back in the first century, um, women were not in a position of, of power, specifically in marriages. Women would be betrothed, 
given away almost as property from one family to another. And there was a commitment that the husband was making to care for and to protect and to love his wife. And um, sometimes in the course of life, a husband would die. And as someone who hadn't been protected or, or needed some sort of sustenance, the, the widow would be left really vulnerable. There was a law called the, the Liverite vow. It was such that a, a brother next in line to the husband would step in the place of his brother when he died to marry his widow, to make sure that she was taken care of. It was, it was sort of like a system, a social safety net, as it were, to make sure that everybody was taken care of and that the vow that a brother had made could be kept and be kept good. For this woman to have been married five times, it simply means that she either had the misfortune of being married to people who ended up dying, or she had fallen into a family that didn't keep their vows. They didn't keep the law. We read um, that, whole, that whole text right there, the exchange of go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right, you got five husbands. As if Jesus is saying like, shame on you for being so immoral. But, but really an ancient audience would actually look at that and go, ooh, that poor woman. That, that's gotta be really tough. That, that's got to be really a desperate place for her to be, that she, she's gone through all of the brothers in the family and she's come to the last one who refuses to marry her. She must, she must feel desperate. And they would see shame, but they wouldn't see shame on her. They'd see shame on the brothers' families. And here's why I pause to just make that comment, is because we have active imaginations when we read the Bible. And if we aren't close students of the Bible will fill in the gaps with our own culture and will be way off and make assumptions that are unfair. We often hear this passage and we think, look at this woman. She is so, you know, immoral and so, you know, out of control that she's going around wrecking homes and, and, and yet look at the grace of Jesus that he cares for even her. Hey, is that true that God loves everybody? Yeah, is it, is it true that the grace of Jesus extends even to the worst of the worst of the sinners? I'm chief among them. Amen to that. We just can't get that out of this text. Okay, we're just not going to find that principle here. That is a subplot to a wider narrative. Because when this woman is talking, the, the ancient audience would have seen that this was a communal dysfunction. That something in Samaria was broken and needed fixing. And we see this fits because the next thing that she says is she, she realizes where Jesus is going with this and she turns the conversation away from her own personal situation to the differences in worship and theology between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now I know this is a lot of like background in history today, but, but just stay with me. She, she says to Jesus, she says, um, you know, we experience God differently than you. And the Samaritan community might not be keeping God's law, but we worship in a different place than you do. And um, you know, you guys have different ways of worshiping God and we, we kind of do it our way. You do it your way. Why? The insinuation is why can't we all just get along? Have you ever heard that argument before? You talk to a friend about your faith. They come from a very different perspective and they try and shut down the conversation with, well, that's just how you do it. For us, it's like this. And why can't we all just get along? It's a very common, common tactic, but Jesus doesn't allow that type of pluralism. 
No, I want you to, to, to look into what he says. He responds that God wants worshipers who are full of spirit and truth, meaning truth, meaning we identify the real God with his real name, praising him from the depths of our spirit's true being, not just with our lips. The woman, um, still trying to figure out what to say to this guy who's got a, a view into her life and this rich depth of the theological understanding, she tries again to sidestep Jesus' uncomfortable certainty. She, she says to him, if you, Jewish man, who has weird knowledge of my life, say that we need to worship what we know, then let me tell you what, what I know. She, she said this, I know that Messiah, isn't it interesting that John again translates this for us because we didn't read chapter one. But um, it's here again, called Christ. He translates it for us. I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is like old speak for like, listen, man, I get that you've got your opinion and I've got my opinion, but can't we just agree to disagree because one day it'll all get sorted out in the end. Have you ever had a friend who's like, man, uh, let's just try our best to live nice today on this earth, but like when we die, we'll figure it out and it'll be all kind of come out in the wash. And Jesus doesn't want us to feel so ambiguous. He says to this woman, he says, I the one speaking to you am he. I am the one who is called Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And this is the woman's introduction to Jesus. Just um, in these brief few verses, the first time Jesus ever introduces himself to someone with absolute clarity in this gospel is right now. For the first time, Jesus explicitly tells someone that he is the Savior. Back in John chapter 1, he told everybody else who they were. John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, he told everybody else who they were. But in John chapter 4, he tells this woman with no uncertainty, I am the coming Messiah. And here's something that's incredible. That the Messiah isn't just for the Jewish people, but it's for the entirety of the world it's not just for the people who follow the law of God the right way in the right place with the right words, but the Messiah has come for everyone and anyone who would ever believe in him. This woman uh, has just been rocked. Seeing that Jesus knows something about her, she's got questions for sure. The disciples come back and they start to talk with Jesus, but she has, has had an encounter, an experience that has changed the way she thinks, changed the way she feels. And so here, here's what she does. She does exactly what she would do if you just had an introduction that changed your life. Says so this, then leaving her water jar. So just like she doesn't even bring back, you know, what a wasted trip. Lugged that thing all the way to the well and didn't even get the water. She just leaves it behind. In her immediate desire to, 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 to do the next thing, she, she goes back to the town and she says to the people, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Coincidentally, this is another reason why I don't think that this woman was someone of ill repute. It's because if it was true that she was a, a, you know, a famous sinner, she would say, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And everybody else would be like, yeah, we all know. So what? And they would go about their business. There's something about this woman who is influential in her community that when she says to him, hey, I found somebody who knows me from the inside out, they dropped what they were doing and they went with her to meet Jesus. They came out of their town and made their way to him. Just like Andrew, the first thing that he did was go find his brother, this woman ran to find her people and make an invitation to Jesus. She immediately invited others to consider Jesus with her. 
See, her experience had convinced her that he was no ordinary man. Maybe they could figure out together who he was. And so they all make their way towards Jesus. And look at what happens. This is just the last two slides I want to show you of this story. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. They just took her at face value like, she's found the Messiah. That's good enough for me. I'm in. But they got there. They urged him to stay with them. And so Jesus stayed with them for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Look at, look at how this ends. They said to her, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And think back to all the introductions that have happened between mutual friends. Hey, I've got a friend that I think you really might enjoy. Hey, I've got a friend that I think you guys would hit it off. Hey, I've got a friend who's into the same things that you are. Maybe we can have coffee together. Maybe I can connect you guys. Maybe you guys can play some music together. <laughs> of all the introductions, this might be one of the most significant in the history of humanity. Here we see Jesus leaving the center of the religious world, going out to the outskirts, to, to the nobodies, to the forgotten people, going to a woman, introducing himself to her. And then unexpectedly, she goes and introduces Jesus to her whole community, all of her people. And unexpectedly, all of her people come out to Jesus and they find their lives are absolutely changed. This is the reason I wanted to blitz through this story and get to the end is because if we don't consider the outcome of this conversation, that many more believed in Jesus as the savior of the world, we're left in this story where this woman just has an encounter with Jesus and we see how gracious Jesus is. And here's the bigger point of this woman's story. You're, you're not gonna say amen to this. That's okay. We're not that type of church yet. One day in 50 years, we will be. But not yet. I get that. I'm with you. I'm fine. You just, you just make the sour lemon face. You know what that is? Amen. That's, the, that's the, like, the way we agree. You just agree privately, okay? Here's, here's the point. So the gospel has the power to impact entire communities if only for the experience of one person with Jesus. Make the face. That's fine. Now you can amen this part. Amen. Hold on, no, no, no. Here's what I really want to say. Is that our invitations have the power to change the future. This is the story of the woman at the well. What she's really communicating to us through the pages and the pen of John who, who wrote for us the story of Jesus is that when he experienced a Samaritan woman who experienced Jesus, she went and invited her whole community to come. And the entire community heard her words about Jesus and they believed in him. But then they went for themselves and they saw who he was and they heard who he was and they listened to who he was and they found his teachings to be consistent and true. It changed for the entire community, their future. I don't want us at Heartland to miss the joy that comes when we use the story that God's given us to encounter our people with an invitation to the one who matters the most to us. What God is, is doing throughout the course of history is using people, ordinary people like you and me, to have extraordinary encounters with himself, to then go tell ordinary people like our friends about this extraordinary God and have their lives changed extraordinarily. It is the way that God in his wisdom has chosen to spread his fame and his gospel and change communities. Oh, here's what this looks like for us. Here's what this looks like for us. Um, 
Did you know that one of the best places for you to meet somebody on your first date is Heartland? We have long on staff tried to figure out the mechanisms. Maybe you know how to do this, but I'd love to advertise on all of the dating apps. I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of this. I really, I really believe this. Because I, I, you know, sometimes the places that you choose to go meet people that you've met online, they're not really the safest places. Or you don't know if they're going to be safe places. And what you really are trying to get in those interactions, in those relationship building moments, is a sense of what makes the person tick. And I believe, I think you believe, that if Jesus is the most important person in your life, the person that you want to date has also got to be kind of into Jesus as well. Or you want to introduce that person to Jesus. So, 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 if you're on a dating app, it, uh, no shame. I mean, I, the, the, the weddings I do today, almost all dating apps. If you're on a dating app, the first invitation you can make to that person, safest place in Johnson County, Heartland Community Church, bring that person to church. And see what happens when you introduce them to the one who has changed your life. It could revolutionize your future. Now, um, I don't think the Samaritan woman's story is just about getting people into church. I, I think it's about us going back to whatever sphere of influence or whatever relational pursuits we have in our life and actually bringing the, the message of who Jesus is and what we found him to be with us. I don't know. Do we have that question that she asks? I don't know if there's a slide, but she asks this question. It's this incredible question, and I think this is really instructive for us as we go and we bring our faith to the world around us. I think we ought to bring questions, not statements. This, this Samaritan woman has this incredible experience with Jesus, and uh, in the midst of it, she goes back to her community. I don't think we're going to find it, but that's okay. She asks, she goes, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She brings a question to her community. She, she, she asks the question. She says, could this be the long-awaited Savior that we've been looking for? And they come on this quest to together discover who Jesus is. Our invitations to help people discover Jesus alongside of us could change the future, not just of your family, but the future of, of, your, of your neighborhood. I, I have conversations with my neighbors, and it's easy for me because I'm a pastor. I just kind of slide that into the conversation, and either gets rejected and I don't see them again, or we go deep. It's just a, it's a, it's a fork in the road that I know it's going to go one of two ways. And it's interesting to me how many times it's, it's actually led towards deeper conversations about how Jesus intersects my life. These are moments where boldness and courage and kindness is often expressed best with questions. Questions like, I don't know who works better in life than Jesus. Do you? I, I don't know when I'm in these hard places and, 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 and I'm up against it, where else I can go but to Jesus? And there are so many ways that a gentle question can lead someone to explore Jesus and find him to be truly the savior of their life. That's what happens with the Samaritans. They come on the basis of this question, is he the Messiah? And at the end of the story, I don't know if you saw it, they're the ones telling this woman, we know that truly this man is the savior of the world. Futures change when we invite people to Jesus. Now, um, here, here's why this is something that all of us are struggling with right now. It's because you're like, Dan, you've already explained to me the first century world, and it seems like you know that word, world really well. Maybe you know that world better than you know the current world right now in the 21st century, because the world that I live in is a little bit hostile towards Christians. 
world that I live in, it's kind of like a sin to try and like share your faith with other people. In fact, we believe today, Dan, not, not sure if you know this, but, but faith is a private thing that is best kept between you and yourself. Please don't talk about religion. Please don't talk about anything other than the royals and the weather here in Kansas City. Leave that, leave that faith to yourself. We all, we all, I think, have some, some subconscious curiosity about whether or not it's safe for us to actually talk about Jesus. Um, Shibu and I were talking about this a couple days ago, and, and we were explaining, uh, we're, we're discussing this exact phenomenon in our society. And he uh, pointed me to some research that he had engaged with just a, about two, two, three years ago, uh, done through Lifeway Research. I think this is fascinating, and it guts the rationale for why we don't do this. Here's, here's one question that was asked to people who are not Jesus followers. It says, this was a question or a statement, agree or disagree. My Christian friends talk about their faith too much. So people actually asked a whole group of non-believing pe- people in our, in our world, do, do you think your Christian friends talk about Jesus too much? And only 22%, uh, one out of every five, said, yes, oh my gosh, so annoying. But 73% of people said, no, I don't think they talk about him enough. 5% were just confused by the question. <laughs> There's always that five, right? I don't know if this is surprising to you. It was really surprising to me. To find out that actually people in this world don't think that if we have faith, we're doing a good job of talking about it. Here's a follow-up question that's even more interesting. Uh, If a friend of mine really values their faith, we would say if a friend of mine claims to have a Jesus-first life, to put Jesus first in all things, I don't mind them talking about it at all. 79% of people said absolutely fair game. If they truly care about their faith, I'm happy to engage this with them. Uh, another statistic said, how, how happy are you? And, and most of the people said, I'm, incre- I'm incredibly open to a conversation uh, with them talking about their faith. Only 18% said, I, I, I don't like it. Only 18%. I know, you found all the 18% in your life. You're just, your family's filled with 18%ers, right? <laughs> no. What this tells us is we have a much greater opportunity to genuinely share what we found to be true about Jesus than we thought, if we would only be courageous enough to tell our story, to say to others, this is who I've experienced Jesus to be. Would you like to come and experience him with me? I have to wonder what Samaria around here could be changed forever if you simply ask the questions to others. I think I found Jesus is the purpose of everything and I'd love for you to come figure it out with me. Wonder what it would look like for you to give your faith to others and see their lives changed. You could be the spark that God uses to change your community. But there's another um, step towards this that I think this woman at the well story pushes us to. And I want you to hang in here with me for just a couple more minutes. I promise I'll get you out in just a few seconds. But there's a step that we take, what we, what we call the whole sharing your story thing. There's a, there's a way Jesus gave us to do this in the church. And I think it's actually one of the primary applications of John chapter four. It's baptism, baptism. Baptism is just simply sharing your faith publicly with others. That's what baptism is. It's just simply telling other people, I follow Jesus with my life. I believe he is the son of God. He's changed me. I've been buried like he's been buried. I've been raised like he was raised so that I could experience the fresh life that he has for me. Now, um, I'm trying to help us all be people who think critically about the Bible and the story and to not get ideas for our faith that aren't 
tied to the text. And so hopefully you're thinking to yourself right now like, Dan, you're violating one of your own rules. There's nothing in the story about baptism. And that's only because I set you up. There absolutely is. Let's look at verse one. This is how the story starts. This is how the the beginning of the story of the woman at the well, it starts like this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, right? This is sort of like a, I heard that you heard that I heard that you heard. I know that you know that I know that you know. Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And that's not surprising because in John chapter 3, John literally says, go follow Jesus, stop following me. And so it makes sense that everybody sort of had transitioned their allegiance over to Jesus and, and the disciples of Jesus were doing all the baptizing and it really bothered the religious leaders in the day. It really set off a firestorm of controversy such that Jesus had to stop his baptism ministry, his initiation of what baptism meant back then. It meant a following of a leader, a pledging to a way of teaching that was inconsistent uh, with the, the ways that the Old Testament should be understood. This is what baptism signified back in the day. Jesus didn't invent it. He just used it as a way to help bring people along to his cause. And so Jesus has stopped baptizing people because the Jewish people had such hard hearts against him. And so Jesus does... What only Jesus can do is he takes the, 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 the point of baptism and he says, I'm going to stop baptizing here. I'm going to go to a place that's not Jewish, to a person without any power, who, who doesn't worship the way that we do. And I'm going to show you what baptism really looks like without the water. And so he goes to this woman, this divine appointment. He meets her at a well. The heat of a day, I don't have the time to get into this, but it's a whole contrast with Nicodemus. If this is like freaking you out, just go read John chapter three, compare it with John chapter four, and you see that this woman is, is coming to Jesus in the light of the day where Nicodemus came in the dark of the night. And, and so Jesus comes to this woman, and he has this conversation with her about who he is and what he can do for her from the depths of her being. And he talks with her. Is it a surprise that he talks with her about the water that is his? the living water that only he can provide. And she says, I want that. And without taking the plunge, she does what baptism signifies. She tells her story to her community, and her community believes. The whole thing is a baptism of sorts. The whole thing is a story of sharing your faith of what God has done. And, now, and here's, so, so here's what I want you to do. If you don't know how to share your story, or you, that sort of scares you, but you know that you love Jesus and he's changed your life and you want to ask questions with other people about him, but you just want to let people know that you're, you're, you're on the side of faith, we have an incredible opportunity for you to do that coming right up here in just a couple weeks, right here in this service, we're going to be baptizing people. We're going to be celebrating with joy the fact that Jesus comes and saves real people who live in our community and celebrate together the, the lives are being changed. And baptism is a story that you can tell with no words. It is, a, it is an object lesson. This signifies the same death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus had that you're trusting in. That's why we dunk people into water. 
That's why we raise them up out of the water because you're buried in the likeness of Christ and you're raised to new life with Christ and that new life changes everything. It changes your future. It's a whole new beginning and as you come out of that water, you're declaring with your actions in your life that you trust only in Jesus. There's nothing else in this world that'll satisfy only him. I found him to be the savior of my life. And that story proclaims the goodness of God to our community. I'd love for you, if, if, if like speaking up in your neighborhood or on your block or with your family is, is tricky for you, I would love to invite you to come tell your story through baptism to us, <laughs> to your church family, to, to other people who are on this journey who are here to encourage you together because you'll be encouraging us to see Jesus. I love baptisms. I love baptisms so much. Aside from weddings, baptisms are probably like the favorite thing that I get to do as a pastor. I know baptisms sound cultish, so here, I want to show you um, a video. I don't think it's rolled yet. I want to show you a video of last year's baptism service, just what it looks like, because um, it is one of the most profound ways that we can express the goodness of God, a hands-on experience with God in our life that is unlike any other. I, I hate to say this. I mean, you can watch a video, but you, you can't live stream it. You got to be there to experience it. And so um, I'd love to invite you on October 23rd, just be in the house, be in the room, and, and for lots of us who haven't taken the step of being baptized, get in the tank. The way you can do that is by, um, around our building, there's QR codes. I'd love for you to, 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 to flash your phone over that and sign up on our, on our forum. We'll be happy to walk you through all the questions that you have. Or you can just go to our website or you can find one of us uh, out in the lobby uh, after the service. Here's, here's the deal. We want you to experience the joy of invitations, the joy of seeing what happens when God uses your story to change the futures of your community. Would you stand with me? I want to just close in a benediction. A benediction is an old, sort of old Hebrew way of sharing good words, a blessing upon you as you leave. Um, the Israelites would actually not bow their heads or close their eyes. They would just look up at the person giving the benediction as a way to receive the blessing and um, I'd love to, in this moment, just ask this blessing from God to you. May, may, may the Father, may the Father of all courage and faith and freedom, may he be the one who gives you eyes to see who Jesus really is. May he allow you to ask questions of your neighbors and of your family members to help them see that your life has been truly changed. May his face look upon you and be gracious to you. And may you live out this changed life together in peace. We love you, Harlan, so much. See you next week.